Welcome to the University of Pittsburgh's Health and Explainable AI podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Gosporé, a health and science reporter. Join me as we cover advancements being made in health informatics and explainable AI for students, researchers, and healthcare practitioners interested in applications of artificial intelligence and machine learning. This podcast is produced by the University of Pittsburgh's Health and Explainable AI Research Laboratory at the University of Pittsburgh School of Health and Rehabilitation Sciences Department of Health Information Management. Headed by Ahmed Tafdi, Pitt's Hex AI Lab cultivates extramural collaborations with academic institutions both nationally and internationally through its research, educational contributions, and this podcast series. Hello, and welcome back to Pitt Hex AI a podcast series produced by the University of Pittsburgh's Health and Explainable AI Research Laboratory. I'm Jamie Grams, your host for today's session. We've got a great one planned and are thrilled to have Peter Shen with us from Siemens Health and Ears as one of healthcare's leading experts in the field of digitalization and artificial intelligence. Peter is the Vice President of Digital and Automation at Siemens Health and Ears for North America. Hi, Peter. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Jamie. Really excited to be here today and looking forward to our discussion. I am as well. Thanks so much for joining. Today's episode is really special for me because I'm not only a grad student within the University of Pittsburgh's Health Informatics program, but I'm also a longtime employee of Siemens Health and Ears and a colleague of Peter's. Peter, Siemens Health and Ears has been one of the pioneers within the field of medical technology for a long time. But can you share a little bit of background on the company for those that may not be familiar? Yeah, sure, Jamie. Siemens Health and Ears is an incredible organization. We're, we're a leading medical technology company with over 170 years of experience and over 18,000 patents globally. With more than 65,000 dedicated colleagues over 70 countries, we continue to innovate and shape the future of healthcare. An interesting fact, Jamie, an estimated 5 million patients globally every day benefit from our innovative technologies and services in the areas of diagnostic and therapeutic imaging, laboratory diagnosis and molecular medicine, as well as our digital health and enterprise services. So that comes up to nearly a quarter of a million patients every hour are interacting with our Siemens pieces of imaging equipment or services that we have. I mean, that's just amazing, Peter. And I know it's one of the things that inspires us and, and many of our colleagues from around the world. And you and I, we both grew up in this company within healthcare, working for Siemens Health and Ears and focusing on all things digital but actually in different areas of diagnostics, with you more so focusing on the in vivo diagnostic side and, and me on the in vitro diagnostics. Can you share some insight on how medical technology supports these two different areas of diagnostic testing? Yeah, absolutely. So if we look at the kind of the literal definition of in vivo, it, you know, it comes from Latin as kind of within the living, yeah? So, so in vivo diagnostics really refers to kind of tests that are being performed with a living organism. So medical imaging is a great example of that, where like x-ray technology or computed tomography, magnetic resonance imaging, they enable mostly non-invasive visualizations of the patient. In vitro, the opposite here, really from a Latin perspective, is within the glass. So it's, it's contrary and it refers to diagnostic testing performed outside of the body or on fluids or tissues that's been extracted from the patient here. So Patients get uh, their blood drawn for lab tests or analyze a, a tissue biopsy trying to diagnose like cancer cells or whatnot. These are common examples of kind of an in vitro diagnostic test. Yeah, it's pretty amazing that we work for a company that has a long tenured history and expertise in both these areas of diagnostic testing. 
And specifically on the, the medical imaging, we've been one of the long-standing pioneers in this field uh, since its inception, be it with X-ray devices in the early 1900s, computed tomography in, in the mid-1900s, and then eventually magnetic resonance imaging in the late 1900s. And for those that may not have a, a medical imaging background, can you provide a little bit of insight of each of these different technologies and how they work? Yeah, absolutely. As I mentioned before, Siemens Health and Years, I mean, this is this is our core competency from over 170 years ago. And the invention of these different medical technologies here to help uh, take care of patients way back even, again, in the late 1800s. So, so real simply, like an X-ray is produced when we take kind of negatively charged electrodes and they're heated by electricity and electrons are actually released and they then produce some energy here. And when you get an X-ray, there's a sensor in, in early days would be like a, a cassette holding a film or something of that sort. Today, it's more kind of a digital sensor that's on the other end here. But if you actually then aim those charged particles towards the human anatomy there, it passes through your skin and your muscles and organs and certain types of uh, tissues, like soft tissues, they, they can't absorb that energy from the x-ray here. And so that then appears dark on the x-ray film. However, though, denser tissues like bones, they actually absorb the x-ray that's being shot at the anatomy there. And those then don't expose that piece of film or that digital sensor on the other end. So they actually then appear as like light or white images on that x-ray film. So this is why you see then on an x-ray, you see kind of like the bone structure of the anatomy on a typical x-ray. So in computed tomography, if you think about it, we're scanning the body by taking now that x-ray and that tube that's shooting these electrons and rotating that around the body here. And at the same time, as we rotate it, we slowly advance the body. So we actually create kind of this spiral effect, if you will, that gives us a greater ability to kind of visualize the body here. So, so the main part of that CAT scanner or CT scanner here is a ring uh, where this X-ray tube goes around that we call the gantry, and that houses that X-ray tube and the source of the radiation here. And then opposite of that ring is usually a sensor. In this case, today now more of a digital sensor that's kind of receiving, again, those different um, electrons that we talked about earlier in an X-ray here. And that sensor, again, measures the amount of radiation that's being received and generates kind of this negative image of inside the body, like we talked about in a general X-ray. Again, denser the tissue, the less radiation passes through. And we use all that information now. If you remember, as I mentioned, the body's moving a little bit. So we can actually use that information to now start to create kind of 3D images or 3D visualization of that body, because now we have now the, the body moving in, in the Z axis, if you will. And so we get this nice visualization of what's going on in the body. So in contrast, magnetic resonance imaging or MRI is very, very different here. So with MRI technology, magnetic properties that make up the atoms within our body, like hydrogen atoms, are used to actually create the images here. So we take a powerful magnet within an MRI to try to align those atoms like tiny compass needles. And if we actually then use a rapidly oscillating kind of electromagnetic wave, we can actually set those hydrogen atoms in motion, causing them to actually spin. And when the magnet is powered off, those atoms kind of return to their normal position. And when we power on that MRI, we can actually make them spin. And that whole process then releases energy that's recorded by the MRI unit. So hydrogen atoms actually have different types of tissue then return their normal position or their spin at different rates here. And that MRI uses these time differences to be able to tell 
the different types of different tissue that we're looking at within that anatomical structure. And again, we can use all that because of the spinning motion and the movement of the patient along the z-axis then to create powerful 3D visualizations of that anatomical structure. And in particular here for MRI, kind of the density of the soft tissue for that particular human anatomy. That's truly amazing. It's so impressive that our company's been working in this space of medical technology, medical imaging for, for over 170 years. I happened to be in Germany this past week at our global headquarters for some training. And I didn't even know, but I learned that Siemens Health Veneers has a med museum in Erlangen. And I had the chance to visit and, and see some of the early innovations that our companies brought to market. And maybe just for some fun trivia, Peter, do you happen to know what the first medical device was that Siemens created and brought to the market? Now you're getting me in trouble, Jamie, because it's been a while since I've seen the museum yeah, for Siemens here. So I actually don't know what that first device is. Well, I have something special here, maybe a little bit of fun, but, but I'd like to introduce some interesting audio footage that we have from our late great founder, Werner von Siemens. So let's listen to one of the first medical device technology that he helped to create way back in the mid 1800s. In 1844, Werner Siemens and his brother Friedrich had an idea. They would use one of Werner's inventions for medical purposes. Friedrich was suffering from serious toothaches and none of the available remedies had brought any relief. The brothers decided to treat Friedrich's teeth with electricity. For their plan, they used one of Werner's devices, which he had christened the Volta Inductor. Hold still, Friedrich. Now this might hurt a bit. It hurts like the devil! Wait a minute. Does your tooth still hurt? Amazing! The pain is gone! Come on, let's treat all my teeth. Finally, after weeks of tooth pain, Friedrich Siemens was completely free of pain. Just a little fun there, but I, I don't know if you had ever heard of that before. I had no idea, like, things like electrotherapy or even radiation therapy had been used to treat patients so long ago. What's your impression? I love it, Jamie. That was both hilarious and also inspiring. And I think I've got a great idea. I think we should play that clip for our kids the next time they refuse to brush tonight. <laughs> I, I think that's a good one. Maybe I'll try that with my little ones. So just some fun there. But, uh, you know, if you are listening to our podcast today and you'd like to learn a little bit more, you can actually go, you just Google the, the Siemens Health and Ears uh, history in healthcare. There's a, a webpage that you can view some of these early innovations, including that little audio clip that we just played. But shifting gears a little bit, Peter, let's focus more on artificial intelligence, machine learning, and its current use within healthcare. There's actually a lot of hype around AI these days, and often a big difference between AI that's being developed and used for research purposes versus AI that's being used to help deliver patient care. So from a big picture perspective, what's your opinion on how far along healthcare is within its journey with AI? And can you share some real world examples of where AI is currently being used today to help deliver patient care? Yeah, you're absolutely right, Jamie. I mean, there's right now a lot of hype and excitement and interest around artificial intelligence. And certainly I think with generative AI solutions and technologies now hitting kind of the, the mainstream consciousness. So topics like chat GPT and other large language models here, this really has started to bring AI to the forefront and also kind of, uh, in some cases, polarize certain opinions around AI within healthcare. So 
Most importantly, though, I think what folks need to realize is AI is not here to replace the doctor or the clinician, but actually is to be the companion of that clinician to help aid them in that diagnosis or treatment of the patient. AI is just another technology or another tool that's available to help them, just like we talked about the x-rays and the CAT scans and the MRI machines as well. So just because it's digital, this is still another tool that's going to help the clinician have better clinical insights, more efficiencies, more improved diagnoses, or more personalized ways to treat the patient by utilizing a technology like artificial intelligence. So, but uh, AI is not really, not just hype and not just something that's happening here in 2023, but it's actually an area that uh, we at Siemens Health in years, we've been a pioneer in this space and have been focused on artificial intelligence and machine learning for more than 30 years, quite frankly. Given our legacy of innovation in medical imaging, developing strong expertise in this field, AI is a natural evolution for us. So if you can believe it, we have over 900 different patent families in the field of just medical imaging and machine learning with over 450 of those patents focused on deep learning. We have actually a AI network of facilities all across the globe with our center of excellence being based in Princeton, New Jersey. And we actually have a supercomputer infrastructure that performs over 1,200 AI experiments a day there. And today, even just from a practical deployment of artificial intelligence, we have over 70 different AI powered solutions that clinicians are utilizing today. So some of these examples, Jamie, in terms of AI being used in healthcare today is if we go back to those examples of what an x-ray machine does or a CT machine or MRI machine does with our Siemens solutions, Siemens CTs and MRIs and x-ray machines, we've actually built in AI into those machines so that when a patient enters, let's say the gantry of that CT scanner or that MRI scanner, the system is automatically positioning that patient so that the x-ray scans can be properly observed through artificial intelligence. So we've actually built in AI algorithms into the scanner itself that recognize certain anatomical structures on the patient and then automatically position that patient that's laying there on that CT or MRI uh, so that we can get the highest quality image coming from those devices. So on the opposite end, we've taken images that have been generated here from those different devices. And we have AI algorithms that allow us to do segmentation or contouring of certain anatomical structures within the body. So in fact, we've actually created more than 140 different anatomical structures like organs or anatomies that we can actually utilize and segment out or contour out within the uh, body. And why is that important? Because many times we actually need to kind of segment out certain anatomical structures so we can focus on them to prepare certain types of treatment on that particular, maybe the diseases within that particular anatomical structure or whatnot. So we want to be able to kind of segment out or put some focus on a piece of anatomy. And so we have automatic AI tools that are able to do that. So great examples there of some of the practical uses of AI already. It's amazing how much AI might actually already be in use within a hospital setting through the devices themselves. It's a, it's a highly regulated environment within healthcare. And also on the in vitro side, there are some practical examples where AI is developed and built into the validated medical devices that, that are being used. So on the, the laboratory testing side, when, when we have our blood drawn and you have routine blood work done, some of the analyzers that perform the testing to assess a patient's health 
the management of the, the samples, the tubes, if you will, there is vision technology that's used in some of these analyzers to, to help facilitate the most efficient way to process and transport that tube on the analyzer itself. And then over the past couple of years, especially with the, the whole COVID situation, another area of uh, leveraging AI from an in vitro diagnostic testing perspective uh, started to become more prominent. And that's leveraging the availability of structured data. Laboratory test results provide very structured data. And when you couple that with outcomes, confirmed diagnosed outcomes for patients, you can use supervised machine learning techniques to create disease-specific predictive models. So in the case of COVID, there was a lot of effort being done to create predictive models to help identify when a patient was positive with COVID, what's the likelihood that that patient may advance to a severe outcome? That's some research work that we actually did together with our, our team in Princeton, uh, creating a model to help identify COVID patients, which ones were at risk of ultimately needing to have the use of a ventilator or potentially experiencing end organ failure or even uh, a 30-day in-hospital mortality. And those types of models may not be used to ultimately diagnose a patient. They can be used to provide additional clinical decision support, additional information to support a physician, like you mentioned, to help determine and maybe prioritize which potential scenarios they may want to focus on first, uh, potential treatment considerations um, they want to offer to that particular patient. Another big area, one that we see is sepsis. You know, it's the, the leading cause of cost uh, within the United States and, and around the world, leading cause of uh, readmission rates within a hospital setting, very difficult disease to, to manage. And there's a lot of work being done to, to use AI in lab test results coupled with uh, vital signs to help identify those patients that are at risk of sepsis. And it's extremely complicated disease, but there are use cases where it might be pragmatic and helpful. So for example, when a patient's being discharged from a hospital, if you could have a sepsis predictive model as one of the additional tests that could be performed, as that patient's having lab work done to give them a clean bill of health, if you could give confidence to the, the physicians that they're at no or low risk of either having sepsis or developing sepsis, that could help reduce readmission rates and hopefully have a positive impact to patient care. So there's definitely areas I would say it's more in the nascent space. We're in the early stages, but there's definitely areas on both sides, in vivo and vitro, where AI is actively being used today. I think, Jamie, what you're talking about is really where we see the greatest potential for artificial intelligence. I think today, right now, a lot of folks are looking at AI as maybe kind of helping us do a bunch of mundane tasks faster or more efficient or whatnot. But the topics that you talked about, the ability for a technology like artificial intelligence to to consume large amounts of clinical data and to be able to use that information and, and then find correlations in all that data. Yeah. So you have all these different pieces of clinical data, like you mentioned, laboratory data, maybe it's imaging data, like we talked about earlier. It could be kind of genomic data in the future or whatever the case may be. But then to have it, one, consume all that data, but then two, also find correlations within all that data that you and I might not be able to see at first glance here. And use that information then to, to help the clinician then make a more informed diagnostic decision or maybe a more personalized treatment decision for that patient. That is the power of artificial intelligence there. So it's, again, it's more than just kind of doing the tasks that I mean, and, and those are all important. Yeah. Some of the, the breakthroughs that we've had with AI to date, you know, in terms of efficiency gains and being able to be more productive, doing the things that we don't want to do so we can focus on the things that we do want to do. 
that's all very good stuff. But the potential of AI is kind of what you outlined there. And its impact to the patient from a healthcare standpoint, that's where the greatest potential of AI is. Yeah, it's pretty exciting, Peter. But then there, there's also a number of challenges that we we definitely need to overcome in this space. And you know, we're said to be in the fourth industrial revolution, with steam power being first, the the age of science and mass production the second, the digital revolution the third, and and now AI lies at the core of the fourth industrial revolution, that referred to as a smart and connected production systems being designed to interact with the physical world and enable decisions in real time. So as we're in this the fourth phase of that revolution, where do you see some of the key challenges that AI faces before it will be accepted for use within healthcare, let alone widely adopted? Yeah, it's a great question, Jamie. And, and I think the listeners have to remember that healthcare is a highly regulated industry. Yeah. And quite honestly, rightfully so. It's needed. Yeah. We're talking about patients' lives that are at stake here. So while, you know, we're starting to see the inclusion and use of AI in some areas, like as I mentioned before, building in AI into kind of the medical devices that are being developed and whatnot and validating them through an FDA process, it's still very early stages in terms of leveraging this potential around artificial intelligence. So as you acknowledge, Jamie, you know, realizing that potential within healthcare is isn't easy. And there's really a a number of real world challenges that we need to overcome. You know, certainly I think a lot of these AI algorithms, we haven't really talked about it that much, but these AI algorithms are, are developed by taking a lot of existing data that we assume is ground truth data to kind of create the algorithm that's going to figure out how to solve something or help us interpret something here. So, so the question becomes, you know, how do we develop these these AI applications and how do we make sure that the data that we utilize to create these AI algorithms is truly the ground truth. And a great example of that is kind of like the inherent bias that comes with the development of AI algorithms. And this is very prevalent in the healthcare space, for example. So if I want to create an AI algorithm that, let's say, identifies tumors for women who are maybe susceptible to breast cancer or whatnot. So I, I could kind of create that algorithm and I could take a, what I think is a ground truth of um, a set of data to kind of train that algorithm to be able to identify on, let's say, mammography images that this is a, a malignant tumor and, and this is something bad and we need to do something with it. So I could feed my AI algorithm, let's say, a million images of you know malignant tumors and I could have an AI algorithm that is, you know, really, really accurate in terms of spotting that tumor. Now, let's say I created that and I take that algorithm and and maybe I deploy it, let's say, in a patient environment that's made up of folks who have uh, a European lineage or, or kind of a, a westernized lineage or whatnot. And let's say that AI algorithm does fantastically well. Yeah. But then I take that same AI algorithm and let's say I go to another part of the world and I deploy that on female patients who have maybe an Asian heritage, yeah? And that same algorithm fails miserably. Now, why is that the case? Well, it could be it's because of the inherent bias that's been built into my AI algorithm. And that goes back to the data that I use to train that algorithm. So if I used a million images of women who had malignant tumors, but all those women were, let's say, of European descent, that might not be so accurate when I then try to use that in a patient population that is of Asian descent. And so what we started to see, and us being a 
a global healthcare organization, as I mentioned earlier, a global healthcare network for AI, we actually realized that with even our own algorithms. So we actually had um, AI algorithms that are identifying chest nodules or whatnot that we developed initially that were very successful in um, westernized countries, but then failed, quite frankly, in kind of like populations that were maybe more Asian-based or uh, Eastern-wise. So we actually had to redevelop or retrain the algorithms, yeah, to be applied towards the patient population where that algorithm was going to be used at. And so the point that I'm making here is that that's something to consider here. As people develop AI algorithms here, you want to actually make sure that you consider, especially in healthcare, the patient population that that AI algorithm is going to be applied towards, because that's going to be very critical, not just for the accuracy, but really the applicability of that AI algorithm in kind of the whole healthcare process. So that's a key component there, something that's a very challenging. And of course, that leads all into kind of the, the overall trustworthiness of the AI. Yeah. And this goes back to the concept of what is considered ground truth here. And you're seeing that already today from a practical standpoint, you know, with kind of these generative AI solutions like a chat GPT. And I think everyone's kind of heard different stories about, you know, you know, I asked it a question and it gave me all this wrong information, that type of stuff. So here again, we need to create as a space here around artificial intelligence, how do we create the right guardrails to ensure that we have true ground truth data to kind of train these AI algorithms? This is something that's really critical because I think what many people forget with AI, especially in the healthcare space, is here, as we mentioned earlier, this is designed to be a tool not to replace the clinician in terms of making their diagnosis or, or anything. And if you remember, I mean, these physicians that we're working with here, they've trained their entire lives on how to diagnose the patient. You know, they've gone through years of study on all of this here. And so now we've, we've created the tool or this technology like artificial intelligence. And now we're telling this clinician who spent their entire life studying, performing, you know, diagnosing all these different things for healthcare and saying, hey, we have a tool that is as good or maybe better than you in terms of being able to diagnose the patient here. As you can imagine, there's a level of trust that you have to develop here in order to get to, to, to get that point because you're not introducing to that clinician any sort of new finding or anything here. This is really doing what the clinician is doing here. So you can understand why there's some skepticism over why this technology is going to help healthcare because again, these doctors, they've been successfully taking care of patients, treating patients for years on end here. Now you're saying this technology is going to help them, you know, help them do it better than they do it or whatever the case may be. And so that, that really is, is an uncertainty, especially in the healthcare space in terms of what that means. So what does that all mean? That means we have to have kind of different sort of guardrails. We have to have some sort of regulation involved here, some sort of guidance on how to best utilize these tools. What's the intended use of artificial intelligence here? And again, really, as we talked about earlier, it's there to kind of be that companion for that clinician. So the clinician, we're not trying to discredit what the clinician knows already about healthcare. We're saying, hey, with a tool like artificial intelligence, we can actually help you make that more informed diagnostic decision make that more personalized treatment for the patient because I have this ability to ingest all this other pieces of clinical data that you, 
the doctor might not be able to ingest all of. I'm able to kind of compare and contrast and find correlations and all that data that can actually help you, again, make that diagnosis or make that treatment for that particular patient. So lots of different aspects there. And then, of course, now, aside from all the philosophy here from a practical standpoint, how do I then take this technology and integrate it into kind of the routine clinical workflow for the patient? So again, that clinician who's been practicing medicine their entire life, they have a certain process, a certain way of of doing things to take care of that patient. Now I've got a new technology that I want to inject into that process. How do I integrate that into that process so it is not disruptive? So it doesn't create more information that the clinician has to now contemplate whether it's relevant or not relevant to taking care of that patient. These topics of integration as well, very tricky topics that we as an organization have to figure out how to take care of going forward. Peter, that's so well said. The last piece, the integration within the existing workflow, it's really key. I mean, if you create tools outside the physician's workflow and and expect somebody to go to a separate software application that's not connected, integrated with the existing uh, electronic medical record system tied to from a compliance perspective and also uh, back to the patient medical record and from a billing perspective, these one-off ad hoc tools uh, simply aren't going to cut it. And that's part of the reason why a lot of the, the work that's done on the research side related to AI in healthcare never makes its way into the actual delivery of patient care. Yeah. I, I think two things that you said you know, really resonate with me. I think the first is you know, transparency. And it all ties back to this podcast, the, the Health Explainable AI, you know, establishing explainable AI, trustworthy AI. And one of the most important things is ultimately transparency on, on having the appropriate sets of data that's collected to generate these models, large amounts of data that represent the patient population where the models are ultimately going to be used. The approach that's taken to, to develop those predictive models, you know, whether it's the, you know, the, the right effort to split the data into appropriate training and test sets, the appropriate measures to validate the performance of those models on an external data set and make sure that you know, they, they're not overtrained or overfitted. And then providing performance metrics, you know, being clear and transparent, and not just the area under the curve, uh, area under the receiver operating characteristic curve, but also the, the accuracy, the sensitivity, the specificity, the precision recall curve. And a lot of cases for, for these disease-specific predictive models that we're starting to see come to the market, you know, one of the first questions that needs to be asked is, from a physician's perspective, how many false positives would they be willing to accept in order to identify a patient that's actually positive for the, the disease? There's a huge trade-off there. You know, if it's an, a screening model for early identification at patient of risk of a, of a cancer, then you know, maybe you're, you're willing to accept a larger number of false positives. But if it's something like sepsis that's going to invoke a huge sense of urgency, impact resources within a hospital setting, it, you know, it might be very low number of false positives. Uh, so you might need to have a very strong performing model. So I think that transparency piece is key. And then I think the other piece we've heard a lot on the, the in vitro side is, is ultimately you know, evidence from a, a clinical utility perspective. And also, what's the impact to the cost of care? And when you create models like this, how is it going to actually change the delivery of care? What types of studies are going to be necessary from a, a clinical perspective, a publications to, to prove that it has a, a positive impact to patient care, but also the potential to reduce the cost of care? Those are key areas that I think will help from a, a trustworthy AI perspective. And something that uh, ultimately, not just industry, but industry, 
universities, uh, re academia, and also the, the providers. I think there's an opportunity for all of us to collaborate closely across that area. So Peter, the next topic, you know, we talked a little bit about it. You know, this podcast focuses on the importance of explainability of, of AI with the goal of enabling adoption of trustworthy AI. So to that point, what are your thoughts on how industry, academia, and research laboratories like the HEX AI laboratory can ultimately do to work together with providers to help healthcare cross the chasm, if you will, to advance the use of trustworthy and explainable AI beyond just the early adopters and uh, the early use cases to become more mainstream with adoption by the early majority? Yeah, I mean, this is such a critical component, Jamie, for the success of a technology like artificial intelligence. It, it can't be driven by one leg of the stool, if you will. Yeah, certainly, I think as a pioneer, as an innovator within the healthcare space, you know, we're very proud at Siemens Health and Years on, on all the things that we're doing around artificial intelligence. But certainly, we have certain aspirations, yeah, around that technology and, and being also a, a healthcare company, you know, we also have business aspirations around artificial intelligence. Certainly, you know, our main focus is obviously always making sure that the, that the patient is centered in terms of everything that we're doing and what's inspiring us. But as you can imagine, we also have business implications associated with that. Yeah. And in order for this technology to to thrive going forward, it needs more than just that perspective. Yeah, it needs the perspective coming from academia who is doing cutting edge research and development in this space, even beyond what we're doing on the industry side. You know, certainly on the industry side, we can take those ideas and we can commercialize them and make them into a business. And we have a lot of people, as I mentioned earlier, that are doing fantastic AI experiments and all that type of stuff, but not to the level or the depth of what's happening in academia. And so we need that partnership. Industry needs that partnership, that collaboration with academia. This is why you see here at Siemens Health and Years, we've developed so many of these value partnerships with academic organizations, uh, healthcare providers throughout the world here, because we realize that we need to have the input and the perspective of those who are, are doing cutting edge research in this area, and also those providers who are actually doing the care for the patients as well. So that's the other leg of the stool. Yeah. So you need to work with the folks who are actually practicing medicine, delivering healthcare, yeah, to take care of that patient. What are the requirements that they have from a technology standpoint? You know, what are the needs that they have, the practical needs of the application of the technology? So we need to have that partnership as well. So academia, the providers themselves, us as industry, all coming together if we're working together collaboratively, that's the only way that we're going to be able to, to advance this technology like artificial intelligence and be able to evolve it into something that becomes mainstream for healthcare. Thanks, Peter. It has been so great having you on today's show. And we really appreciate you sharing all your, your expertise, your insight, your vision with AI in healthcare. And maybe as our last question, last but not least, we'd like to ask if, if you have any closing words of inspiration for any of our listeners working to help make an impact to patient care with AI. I don't know if I have any words of inspiration or anything of that sort, but, but I would say 
what drives myself, what also drives Siemens Health and Ears when we look at a technology like artificial intelligence and it's kind of the emergence of these technologies and how do we apply them in healthcare is that, you know, we're really focused on trying to pioneer breakthroughs within healthcare and not just for everyone, but also everywhere. Yeah. So being able to enable this technology like artificial intelligence to help take care of patients, regardless of where they are throughout the globe here, regardless of, you know, their access to care, give them the ability to leverage a technology like this to, to help them everywhere throughout the world. Thank you so much, Peter. That concludes today's Fit Text AI podcast. And we hope you really enjoyed the discussion with Peter Shen from Siemens Health and Ears. Thank you for listening. And if you have kids, don't forget to remind them that brushing their teeth is a much better alternative to the electrotherapy we heard earlier today from Werner von Siemens and his brother Friedrich. This is Jamie Graham signing off for the Pit Hex AI podcast. Thanks so much. Thanks everyone for tuning in and for following the show. The Health Unexplainable AI podcast is produced by the University of Pittsburgh's Health Unexplainable AI Research Laboratory at University of Pittsburgh School of Health and Rehabilitation Sciences Department of Health Information Management. I'm Jordan Gospore. Thanks for listening.